I guess we're just past the halfway point in this retreat. So still a lot of, a lot of days left in which to make uh, wonderful progress in your meditation practice. You know, uh, the first several retreats that I went on, uh, I'd like to tell you about them. They were held in a room that was about twice as long as this one, and maybe half again as wide. And there were about 15 of us lined up along one wall with our cushions. And uh, we, we slept and meditated in the same room. And uh, the bell would ring at 4 o'clock in the morning we would get up and we would roll up our bed and then we would sit all along, all along the one side, as I said. At night when we went to sleep, every second person would go to the opposite side of the room and roll up their bed so that we weren't sleeping on top of each other. But during the day, we were all in one line on one side of the room. And so we would sit for an hour and the bell would ring and then we would walk for an hour. We would stand up and walk to the opposite wall and turn around and walk back. And walk to the opposite wall and turn around and walk back. And the bell would ring and we would sit for another hour. And then during one of the morning walks, it was actually a, the second morning walk, uh, the bell would ring and that would mean that we would it was time to eat, so we'd be walking and the bell would ring and we'd all get on that side of the room and we'd go out the door, there was a hallway down a hallway and into the room where the meals were served. The entire retreat was in absolute total silence and in complete slow motion. There were three bathrooms and everybody moved very, very slowly. And, and well, I didn't mention when the bell rang in the morning, actually, we didn't sit right away. First, there was a period where everyone was allowed to walk to the bathroom. And so everyone moved very slowly. So they took a little while, and there was a line outside the bathroom. And, uh, of course, you know, if by the time the bell rang, you had to be considerate of the people behind you. Otherwise, the last person in line or the last couple of people in line for the bathroom might not get to go. So, but everybody, everything was done very, very mindfully and very slowly. With the eating, when the time came to eat, we'd go, we'd line up, and wait patiently in line one after another with our plates standing as one person after another, very slowly and mindfully took their food and put it on their plate. And mindfully took some more and put it on their plate. And mindfully and carefully set down the spoon and mindfully and carefully reached over and took a piece of bread and mindfully and carefully placed it on their plate. And when they were done, they would move ahead a few steps you'd have your chance to do that. And we sat and we mindfully ate together. 
And when you were finished eating, you s stood in line behind whoever else was already at the sink, and you washed your bowl and you put it away. And then you either went to line up behind one of the bathrooms, or you went to do a chore, or you went back to the meditation hall and you sat or walked. There was almost no sound at all, because even when somebody opened and closed the bathroom door, it was done so slowly and mindfully that just the faintest click, just the faintest little uh, bump when the door closed. You learned a lot of patience. The only time that anyone spoke, and the only words that anybody heard, were the few words in the meditation interviews. Uh, there was no Dharma talks. Because these were intensive retreats. And the idea was to do absolutely nothing to disturb the quality of a person's concentration from uh, actually 24 hours a day. I started to say from the time you woke up till the time you went to sleep. But the instructions actually were to be mindful 24 hours a day. To be mindful going to sleep, be mindful waking up. We were supposed to try to be able, if we were asked, to say, did you go to sleep on an in-breath or an out-breath last night? Did you wake up on an in-breath or an out-breath? And so the idea was to try to be sufficiently mindful that hopefully you would eventually be able to answer that question if you were ever asked. So the quality of the concentration in a meditation retreat like that is very deep. But it's also very, it, it's very difficult too. We all sleep in the same room. And so some people are snoring, some people are laying awake all night, some people are tossing and turning one side to the other. You know. The interesting thing is after a few days, everybody kind of settles in. Of course, you meditate till midnight and the bell rings to wake up o'clock. So in that time that there is to sleep, after a while you, you learn to fall asleep pretty quickly. And after a while that was waking up at four o'clock got to be not quite so bad. But of course there was a tendency for people to sometimes doze off from meditating. But the instruction was that if the person beside you began to snore, your responsibility wasn't an option. Your responsibility was to mindfully and carefully <laughs> extend your arm, and tap them on the shoulder, and then bring your arm back. Every time you heard somebody besides you snoring, snore, and they said, goes off, you did that. Not just for your own sake, it was for the sake of that person, for the sake of everybody else in the room. So it was a very strict way of meditating. And I have to admit that uh, my first experience of it, I thought this was excessive that time. I didn't see, uh, I didn't really see why it needed to be so strict. And, but then in later years, uh, as meditation started getting more popular in North America, I started attending retreats at other places and Indeed, they became much more relaxed doing things like 
getting up at uh, uh, five or six in the morning and <laughs> going to sleep at nine or ten at night. And uh, actually having uh, uh, more bathrooms. Oh, the other thing I didn't tell you about, each meditator had 15 minutes every second day to have a shower. You know, and uh, so there were three, three bathrooms and so there was a walk-in period where a shower, where you had your showers and if you were assigned a shower that day, it was at a particular time. Uh, you would hope the person ahead of you finished on time so that you would have your whole 15 minutes. And then you would try to finish your shower in 15 minutes because otherwise, the person behind you, you could never tell, you might not have a chance for a shower because the bell would ring time for a set. There's no special treatment for a woman. What's that? No special treatment for a woman. <coughs> there was no female. special treatment for, for anyone. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so this was, this was uh, just, uh, it, it was considered to be a part of the whole discipline, is that uh, you learn to, you, you learn to adapt and you, uh, part of it is being considered for other people. How many days? What's that? How many days? Uh, typically uh, 10 days, but sometimes three weeks. And the longest one, which was a three month retreat. Three months, you slept four hours a day every day. That's right. Yeah. Wow. So, so it was adequate sleep. I, well, people would adapt to it. My personal opinion is that that's not a good thing. That's not enough for people to get adequate rest. But what was really good about those meditations was the absolute silence and everything happened in slow motion. When you were eating, there wasn't all this clink, 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 clink of <laughs> knives and forks and spoons and dishes and cups and things like that. Hardly a sound. Every now and then a crunch through a piece of celery or you know, something like that. But almost complete silence. Absolutely no talking, not even the Dharma talks. And the reason for that is that any talking, including Dharma talks like this, this disrupts your concentration. It disrupts your quality of meditation. It's like you spend the whole day going two steps forward, and now you're going to spend an hour going one step back. So that's why they didn't do Dharma talks. Yes? Were people happy at the end, or were they quite miserable? <laughs> people were happy in the end. It was very common for people to bail out in the first few days. I see. Okay. Yeah. Not for the beginners. And the usually, you know, if you made it to the third, third day, fourth day for sure, you would make it to the end of the retreat and be very happy. But uh, not everyone could do it. And the, the first few days are the hardest. First few days, it's most difficult to sleep. And the first few days, it's most difficult to stay awake during the day. And the first few days, you're arguing in your mind about this is stupid. What kind of idiot set this thing up? <laughs> you know, it must be a sadist. There's no point in this. Why did I get myself into this? This was a big mistake. You know, I should have been smarter than this. So where is and, and actually, in the first three days. I would say typically for most meditators, except for the more experienced ones, there was a lot of time spent thinking of what is the best excuse I can come up with to explain why I have to leave. <laughs> really. 
Well, as I say, that was the very first meditation that I went to, and it was done in a very strict tradition that came from Southeast Asia, uh, from from Thai, from the Thai forest tradition. Wow, they still got some other different means of that Thai tea. Yeah, well, the, there is one. There is a tougher tradition. The, uh, the uh, some of the Zen monasteries in in Japan are, are much tougher than much this. tougher. Uh, there's a mandatory cold shower outdoors in the court, courtyard every single day, no matter whether it's freezing or snowing or what, you know, and, uh, uh, and there's no meditator next to you tapping on your shoulder <laughs> to fall asleep, it's a bamboo across your shoulders. So it's not the strictest, it's by far not the strictest meditation technique. But then we come to way, the, the way it evolved in North America, and some of you I know have been to others, maybe not all of you, some of you haven't, but some of you have been to other retreats in North America. And I've been quite a few in different places. And as I say, there's a few ways they differ. There's more time allowed for sleeping, and that's a good one. And usually they have more bathroom facilities and they provide longer breaks so that, you know, there's more flexibility and it's easier to make sure that you have the opportunity to have your time in the bathroom and in the shower and so forth. It makes it much nicer. Uh, the other thing is most retreats that you'll go to in North America nowadays have, uh, have really nice food. You know, uh, although the, the more traditional ways, and most of the meals are, are quite simple. I mean, they may be very well prepared and tasty. But there's a lot of the same stuff over and over every every day, and nothing fancy. So, but retreats nowadays, some of them have absolutely fabulous food. Vegetarian lasagna one day, yeah. all kinds of things day after day. Well, you know, you've been to some of these retreats. How did you talk yourself self to stay? What's in, that? How did you talk yourself into staying in that first retreat? Because I, I had. You know, like a really tough retreat. My first one was a really, really tough, but mm -hmm. but it was nowhere near as tough as what you described. Well, I, it's hard to say. I, I but I did. I mean, for whatever reason, a mixture of things, uh, pride, and uh, it's been something. It had been something that I really wanted to do for uh, a long time, and this was my opportunity. Idea that I wasn't up to it, you know. Pride may not always be a good thing, but sometimes it yeah. serves the purpose. <laughs> but anyway, back to most retreats that you might go to in North America. The one thing that I found, and I'm not saying that I've been to every retreat from every group in the country, because I haven't. I'd love to, but I haven't by any means. But pretty well, all the retreats that I've gone to. The thing that they had in common with the retreat that, uh, with the first retreats that I did, was absolute silence. When silence began at the beginning of the retreat, you didn't speak. If you whispered to somebody else, well, it, it's unthinkable, uh, you know. And I, as a matter of fact, I don't know what it's like for somebody who's never been to other retreats to go to a retreat because. You know, they they must be really surprised with that temptation to, 
you know, and then had everybody around turning around and look at them like, my God, what planet are you from? And they, if they do that, they don't do it again. I mean, the typical thing when I go on a retreat, because the only time I've spoken, the only opportunity I've had to speak is in meditation interviews, is that my vocal cords swell up and feel thick. So if I start to say something, I have to <coughs> clear my throat. You know, because I'm not used to, to using those vocal cords. And that silence is very important. How deep you can go and how much progress you can make in your practice by being completely undisturbed in that in that space, in that enclosed space of the five aggregates, not being not being intruded upon by voices and words and thoughts and ideas, not being intruded on by looking into somebody else's face. It's amazing how much looking into somebody else's face tears apart the clarity and the focus that you've developed, but after a few days of that, you start to experience it. And, uh, it's, quite a, it's quite a special and important thing to get this, as, as you probably know, most of the traditions involve lots and lots of yogis who go off to the forest by themselves or to caves by themselves, and they do their meditation practice, or in meditation huts, like Ceylon, the jungles in Sri Lanka, are uh, you know around around each of the monasteries. There's all these little meditation huts that the monks and the nuns go to live in and practice in, you know, and they're a long way from the next hut, you know, uh, definitely not shouting distance, sometimes a couple miles away. So, uh, in a retreat where there's a group of people together, the ideal is to see if you can make it as close to being in a cave in the mountains by yourself or in a hut in the jungle of Sri Lanka or Thailand by, by yourself. Or well, actually in Thailand, they didn't even bother with the huts. Apparently, most of the forest tradition bucks outside of the rainy seasons would just uh, find, find a tree that provided adequate pr protection, and that would be their place where they would meditate. So, but it's that complete withdrawal from all of these other things that pull us constantly into our ordinary way of thinking and our ordinary way of being and the ordinary functioning of the mind. Because that's what we're trying to get beyond. It is if on the one hand we have the ordinary person with an ordinary mind functioning in the ordinary way it does, and on the other hand we have an awakened person with an awakened mind, it's a very different thing. And what's keeping us from being awakened is that we are entrapped and entangled and buried and smothered and, and tied up and fettered by all of the ordinary ways of thinking and doing and being. And so to get from there to here, to get from the ordinary state of mind to the awakened state of mind, 
that's what we need to get through and that's what we need to get beyond. So it's really important to remove ourselves from all the sources of those things that are going to pull us back into the ordinary state of uh, becoming. The ordinary state of uh, attachment, becoming, opinions, liking, disliking, everything else. So, now when you're first beginning to meditate, it may not be obvious how important and valuable that that is. As you're first beginning to meditate, the time you spend on the cushion is a uh, is, is a period where there's this just relentless flow of ideas and distractions, and you're constantly just bringing yourself back. And so, it doesn't seem that different than ordinary life because it's not that different from ordinary life. Ordinary life is filled with with this. It's like a it's a, it's like a river running in flood of constant uh, sensations and stimulations and distractions and thoughts and words and words and everything else. And that is precisely the problem. And so when we come to meditate, we're trying to calm the mind down. We're trying to get to a place of clarity and focus. Uh, and if we're going to see beyond all of this, we have to, the calm has to become as, as deep as, as we can make it. The clarity has to become as refined and sharp and clear as we can make it. And we have to train our minds to become very focused. And so this is why the silence and the slowness are important, but so is the continuous mindfulness. That's the part that I think I stress to you most. The problem with speaking and hearing someone else speak is that it disrupts your mindful awareness. It's only a very, very skilled person. It's only a person that is either awakened or close to awakened who can really maintain strong mindfulness in the presence of conversation, in the presence of verbal interactions between human beings. So, um, it, it, it really disrupts mindfulness. And the goal of a deep meditation retreat is to have continuous, uninterrupted mindfulness. That you have a high level of clear, intentional awareness of everything you do, everything you think, everything you feel, every thought that arises, every craving, every aversion, every mental state, every bit of annoyance or impatience or restlessness, that you're clearly there able to be with it. Every ache, every pain, every itch, every experience of a full bladder waiting for a bill, everything that you are totally, completely present in a continuous way. And that's why I say every time it's interrupted, you've taken a step back. Every time you uh, jump up and run across the room. Your mindfulness has you know, started to go every which direction. You may gather it back together again a few minutes later. But if you don't just, if, if it isn't just running across the room, if it's the whole next half hour and all of the different things you do, you know, uh, 
if they're all done mindlessly, then you've lost so much of, the, of, of what you developed over the preceding hours. So uh, the wonderful thing that I learned in those very, very difficult early retreats, which I still believe were overdone and excessive, is the absolute total value of being continually mindful of not interrupting your meditation for one moment. You meditate sitting down, and then you meditate standing up, and then you meditate in the process of sitting down, you meditate sitting down, you meditate in the process of standing up, you meditate while walking, you meditate while opening doors, you meditate while eating, you meditate while urinating, you meditate while putting clothes on, while taking clothes off, you meditate while brushing teeth, you meditate while bathing, you meditate while pulling back the covers to go to bed, you meditate while arranging your body in a comfortable position on your bed, you meditate while observing the mind as it begins to sink into sleep. That's the value. That is, when you meditate in that way, you make great progress. You develop powerful insight and very deep understanding. And when you get used to meditating in that way, which you can at, at uh, most of the retreats there are in, in North America, the ones I've been to, Everything is very slow and very quiet. You know, it's in that way. It's not different than the first one I went to. When the food's served, you're standing there very patiently. Well, maybe not patiently. You're standing there though, and you're waiting, and you're watching. You you would like to have your food, and you're watching while the person in front of you is being so careful and mindful, and you're starting to think things like. They're not really being mindful, they're just going slow to frustrate me. <laughs> it takes them 30 seconds to take their tea bag out of the cup, move it over to the trash can, drop it, move their hand back to their cup, pick it up with the other hand, step back, and get out of your way. But, and is that like the meditation retreats you've been to? Um, People move slowly, mindfully? They move slower, than, but not that slow. Not that slow? Not that yeah. Slow. And there were a lot of sitting, no, no walking meditation, just like okay. you know, 11, 12 hours, nonstop sitting at one right. Okay, well that, that's another way of practicing. That's another way of achieving the same thing, is just to do a huge amount of sitting. But, but the body aches, you know, if you do like 11 That's right. You spend a lot of time just meditating on the aches of the body. My, the tradition that I was trained in and that I teach and the things that I believe in, I don't think we need that much bodily pain to have a good meditation. And I don't think we need to go without sleep to have a good meditation. But I think the one thing that I think that is absolutely indispensable if you really want to take advantage of the time that you have set aside from the rest of your life to do a meditation retreat is that you meditate 24 hours a day and you don't interrupt it. Yes, Leticia. Um, and when we go back to our lives, uh, like if I, go, I, I practice silence once a week, mm -hmm. Sunday or Monday I don't answer my phone, I don't speak to anyone, 
Um, if I decide to go to the gym, I said, okay, for me to hear a teacher teaching and Valentina speaking, or should I just not listen well, to if you're, speak? If you're out in the world, then you do the things of the world. And when you, of course, when you do your hour of meditation every day, you know, you're doing your meditation. Yeah. I'm talking about when you're in retreat. If you, you know, if you, uh, it, it, and let's talk about the rest of this retreat, because this is an opportunity. I would like you to discover how deep you can go if you don't interrupt your meditation. If you just continue with your meditation uninterruptedly. And of course, the difficult part will be is that I have arranged for these interviews. Those interviews are going to tend to disrupt your meditation. And these Dharma talks are going to disrupt your meditation. Um, but that's, we've already made that a part of the retreat. So what I would suggest that you do, see this is the thing, when I go to retreats, everybody nowadays has Dharma talks in the evening on retreats. And so I do too. But my experience on retreat is when I get deep into my practice, um, those Dharma talks, I go to them and I enjoy them, but boy, I feel how they just, the terrible effect that they have on my concentration and my mindfulness, you know. And so I have to really work hard to get my mindfulness back up to speed in time to meditate on going to sleep at night. So anyway, these will be a part of our retreat here, still the the interviews and the Dharma talk. But I would suggest, why don't you try meditating continuously without interruption? And if you do that, you are going to need to slow down. You're going to need to slow down quite a bit from the way you normally do things. But try it. Try meditating continuously. Yeah? I did that today. And I was really sore. So mm -hmm. I did like the 3, 45, 45 to the break. I was really sore. And he was really sore too. I noticed that too. Because we got up. So just go stretch out and come back. Because that's what I was like pushing it. 10 minutes. I was like, you know, but I, I stayed there until the bell rang. Okay, when I said meditate continuously, I didn't mean sit continuously. I meant meditate no matter what you're doing. Meditate while you're eating. Meditate while you're going to the bathroom. Meditate while you're brushing your hair. Meditate continuously all day long. Just sit for the same amount of time. And walk, I'm not suggesting that you, you, you change that, but that you don't do sitting meditation and walking meditation and then non-meditation. Um, you know, I've heard some parts of Southeast Asia, um, people can only afford to go to a retreat once in their whole life. Mm -hmm. They have to save up for, for years to go to a retreat at that's one right. time. And, and that's why, you know, the no matter how strict the retreat is, they treat it extraordinarily seriously because that is one shot that one shot that they have to, to, to be liberated. And that's right. One and only yeah. chance. <laughs> and that would be a really, you know, that is true what you say. and that, yeah, it is, uh, it, it is true, I mean, they, that's how they approach it. This is my only chance to get enlightened. And so, of course, you know, 
they try to respect that for each other and not disrupt each other's concentration and their meditation. So they don't go, you know, talking to each other and having conversations and rushing around and uh, disturbing each other with their noise and their movement and things like that. But it would be a very good way to approach a meditation retreat yourself is that that this think this may be the only meditation retreat I ever had the chance to go on in my life. You know, this my life may end before the next opportunity to have a retreat. So I have to to make the absolute best of it that I can. That's that is the proper way to practice. I tell people you know, and uh, this is, I, I think, very important that every single one of you can achieve the awakening that the Buddha spoke of in this lifetime. It has been made to seem extremely difficult, and I think, I think a lot of the, the teaching fails to really show people how to do it, but you can all become enlightened in this time, uh, in this lifetime. And uh, I, I wouldn't say that absolutely everybody could, but I would say most people could if they put the effort into it. But that's the important part. The fact that it's a lot easier than it may generally be made to sound does not mean that it doesn't require very intense effort and dedication. You have to be totally dedicated. There is no other way that, you know. And uh, so it is uh, to take a maximum advantage of a retreat is an expression of dedication. To have a daily practice is an expression of dedication. And so if it's something that you really are serious about, it will become the most important thing in your life. So it's not that it's unreachable and only a few people can do it, but I don't think anybody can do it unless they make it the most important thing in their life. And if it's the most important thing in your life, it will be obvious in any situation that you're in uh, that uh, you'll be taking the maximum advantage to practice, to cultivate mindfulness and consciousness conscious awareness in order to achieve that. So, yeah. uh, I just want, want to share a very quick, a brief story. Um, the second time I went to this tough retreat, uh, there was a, you know, because the, the schedule is very, very tight, so I didn't sign up for volunteering to clean up the bathroom. Mm -hmm. So this old, very, very old person, very frail and skinny person, because hardly anybody signed up, so he signed up pretty practically every single day to clean up the bathroom. And then, and then he's a retired physician in the middle of the retreat. He, he was uh, bleeding profusely from, from nose. Mm -hmm. And the entire bathtub, you know, the entire uh, shower was full of blood. And he was carrying a bucket around him. He was dripping in blood, but he wouldn't, re he refused to leave the retreat. Mm -hmm. Because, he, you know, he learned about the Dhamma kind of late. And he mm -hmm. thought that this could be the very last chance that he has opportunity to practice. And then, you know, I, I told him, you know, I'll drive you to the hospital that you're coming back, but they have a rule over there. Once left, you cannot come back. So, um, so you know, after he left, he was forced to leave. Mm -hmm. um, I, was, I was deeply moved. I signed up for all of the, 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 the chores, 
Yeah, like, and, and I worked really, really hard, and, and I, and then, and then is, is, yeah, he, he's an extremely inspirational person for me. Yeah, he's a retired physician, he had a good life, good material life, but he's old and frail, yeah. Yes, sir. Um, I'm thinking, uh, is there any Uh, that's correct, except that it, it, there will be thoughts. You can't help that, and there will be emotions. But what you do is you're not, you're not going to entertain those thoughts. You're not going to attach to those emotions. When the thoughts and the emotions come, you mindfully observe them. You just observe them until they go away. You don't, you don't, you don't think your thoughts or get caught by your thoughts or start getting into the content. And likewise with your emotions, you don't uh, uh, identify with them and, and start having the thoughts that those emotions come. But you know, what you're saying is absolutely true, except that there will be thoughts and there will be emotions because you can't keep that from happening. But you can't be mindful of them when they do. Yeah. And I think uh, we don't need to slow motion on purpose. You don't need to, yes. And, and that's a good point. It's, it's not going slow just for the sake of going slow. It's going slow enough that you can be fully mindfully aware. But the pace that people usually move is much too fast to be fully mindfully aware. Unless you're, unless you're already a very, very skilled practitioner. So, but, uh, yeah, so... There's a need to slow down, but you're not, it's not to slow down just for the sake of slowing down. It's slowing down enough to be mindfully aware. Sometimes that will be more slow, and sometimes that will be less slow. But you know yourself how slow you need to be in order to be fully aware of what you're doing. Should I quit doing the garden every time I have a window of our break? Could you, should you quit doing what? The garden. Every time we have the break in the morning and the afternoon, I clean a little bit of a little different spot every time. Should I um, stop? You should think about it because uh, if, if you can do the garden with no thought of how much you're going to get done, but only doing what you're doing very slowly and being completely fully aware of what you're doing, what you're feeling, what you're thinking, uh, what your motivations are. I'm, I'm having those feelings like that. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm doing it that way. You're doing it that way. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm saying. As long as you're meditating, it doesn't matter what you're doing, the garden or changing clothes, you know, but do it with mindful awareness. Try that out. See what happens. Now, I do warn you, I, it, you, there's a feeling that comes after a while. Oh, this is tired. I just, I just want to let go and space out. So you feel that. It's not that it's, it's uh, not without its challenges. But, uh, and you can relax the intensity of your observation and just relax and say, okay, here's my mind feeling tired and not wanting to pay so much attention anymore. And just be there with that. So you said minimize thoughts. What's that? You said minimize, minimize 
No, no, yes, I think the thing is what your mind, what you'll find. Uh, should I tell you this or should I let you discover it? I'll tell you this. <laughs> when your mind becomes tired of being mindful, what it will do is it will look for something to be distracted by or entertained by. Your mind will want to have something that it can, you know, that you know the way it is when you read something? You'll, you'll, you'll want to read because now the reading fills your mind and you don't have to be mindful or watch TV or, you know, something like that. You'll find your mind wanting to find a way to escape into distraction because of the because it's not used to staying fully present. And uh, try not to do that. Your mind will want to daydream. You'll want to plan some project that you've got going. You know, your mind will want to, oh, well, let's just, let's relax for the next 10 minutes and we'll just think about this great plan that we're making or this book that we're writing or this, uh, you know, whatever. Or daydream. You know, imagine what my next vacation in Fiji will be. <laughs> so how can we avoid that? Uh, you can't avoid it. That's what I have an army. Hmm? That's what I have an army. <laughs> that, 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 that That's what I have an army. That's what happens to you, yeah. Afternoon, yeah. You absolutely <laughs> can't. <laughs> that, that's the point. You can't avoid it. That's what happens. That's what your mind does. So what you do is you say, Aha! I think this is what my mind does. <laughs> and... Uh, so uh, you do your best to come back to being, to being in the present and being mindful. And, uh, you know, it, it doesn't matter that you can't avoid it. You just try to be mindful and be aware when it does happen. That's another thing about to be successful in practice. It's kind of related to this, but at the same time, it, it, it is sort of on um, a slightly different track here. But um, it's very easy uh, the ordinary mind of the ordinary person remember is always driven by dissatisfaction and becoming and is always has goals and so we tend to think in that way and so we start meditating and we think okay I'm meditating so that I'll become concentrated and then you start thinking, well, well, this silly way of meditating that uh, this teacher is teaching me, you know, I can make my mind stay still. I, I, I know a better way to make my mind stay still. And you come up with this way, and you're so proud of yourself because you've made your mind stay still. You know, you've made your mind stay. You've found something that your mind wants to stay on and stays on much easier. You know, oh, great. So there I am. I'm a great meditator, you know. This is the, but you know what? It's not really so much about getting to the place where your mind stays on the object. Or, or it's not so much about accomplishing that. It's about getting to that place. So meditators will do this. And, and it happens all the time. And I hear the things people tell me that They've found this way of meditating and it really works for them. Their mind, you know, they don't have a problem with mind wandering at all anymore. You know. And what they don't understand is what good is that? 
great, there's this one thing that you can do and your mind won't wander away from it. But have you trained your mind to stay wherever you want it to be? No. All you've done is found one thing that your mind will latch onto by itself and it's easy to stay with that. And that's not, that's not what the objective is. The objective is to train your mind to get to, to that place. And the other thing is that meditators will, uh, in, in the same process, they won't realize that it's not just the training of the mind, because people will sometimes come out up with uh, ideas of better ways to train the mind. But that e that's not good enough either, because the important thing is what you learn in the process. You say, one part of your mind says, well, I'm going to attend to the sensations of my breath. And then something completely different happens. That's a lesson. All the different things that happen, they're all lessons. They're all lessons about the nature of the mind. They're all lessons about um, the, the nature of the ordinary mind that stand in the way of you achieving the state of the awakened mind. So you may have heard, it's not the destination, it's the journey. Well, becoming single-pointed is a really valuable thing to accomplish. But if somebody could magically make you single-pointed, you would have lost the whole journey. The journey is the important part of it. So, so that's, that's uh, uh, another thing to keep in mind. Don't resist what happens along the way. And don't become fixated on the goal. I need to get to uninterrupted continuity of attention. It's I need to learn everything that I can learn about my mind on the way to uninterrupted continuity of attention. And when you get there, it's not I need to get to single-pointedness as soon as I can. It's I need to discover what does it take to cause a human mind to be single-pointed and what is the difference between a single-pointed mind and the ordinary mind? Because if you got there, you wouldn't, still wouldn't necessarily know the difference. You might know what it felt like to be single-pointed, but you wouldn't really understand what is the difference between a mind that can become single-pointed and one that can't, how the mind has changed. So that's, that's uh, another thing to keep in mind. And then there's one other thing as well, too which I was reminded of by what I just told you. And there, um, so often, people go to a meditation teacher and they get the meditation teacher's instruction. And then they find some other way to do it that they like better. They don't follow the instructions. You know, and uh, if you think about that, you know, so if you go to the doctor and you get the doctor's advice, and then you go home and think, well, I think I have a better way to do this. I'll make up my own medicine, it will work better. You know? Or, you know, uh, you've got some other problem, and you go to an expert, a computer expert, or a plumber, or whatever it is, and you get the expert's advice, and then you go back and say, well, you know, I think it'll work better if I hook the hot water and the cold water directly together. You know? or if I you know, did something like this. And in meditation practice, 
you'll be most successful the more capable you are of trying to follow your teacher's instructions exactly. And if you go to a different teacher, follow that instructions exactly. When you, when you manage to have some success in one or two or three different methods, then you may have the wisdom to combine some things from one with things with another. But wait until you've had success. You know, and don't invent your own way as you go along. Follow the teacher's instruction if you want to get the best result. These, I, you, I, this is not what I said I was going to talk about tonight at all. <laughs> but what? It's extremely important. But it came up. It came up for several reasons. One is that I sincerely want to help people to be successful on this path and to achieve the goal. And. Uh, I also sincerely want to discover what is the best and most effective way for people to, to be successful. Because I know that in the time of the Buddha, it was, it was very, very common for people to achieve all of the four different levels of awakening. And he did once speak to a group of 1,250 arhats all at the same time. And those were not all of the arhats in the world. Those were just the ones that were in this vicinity and came together for this one talk that he gave. And uh, so I know, I know that it's you know there is a way. If we, if I want to find the way to help people to be successful, and I know most of what's out there is not really working that well. Yes. Are there accounts of how hard people cultivate to achieve arahatship uh, in, in Buddha's days? Because are, it, are there rich? Are there? Uh, there, there, you know, like like what you described, there were droves of yes. arahats within walking, probably walking mm -hmm. distance, and uh, and and these people they they probably practice way harder than than our, than, than, than us yeah, Americans. Um. I know for sure that they practice diligently. Extremely yeah. diligent. I, I know that for sure that they practice diligently. Um, I don't know if harder is the right word, oh, okay. but dili they diligent. definitely practice diligently. But the other thing is that I, I know there's a lot of North Americans that have been going to retreats for many, many years, and some of them with a daily practice, and they're not successful. So, so it requires something else than just that. And another question, just out of curiosity, what are Arahats doing in Dharma talks? They already know what they need to know. <laughs> <laughs> because once you're an Arahat, what else is there to talk about? Let's <laughs> <laughs> see other Arahats. <laughs> well, I'll see old friends. Maybe. Yeah, but anyway, I was, I was explaining why I got to this, wanted to talk about this night. Uh -huh. So, you know, this has, I've done this series of retreats over the last year. It's been, uh, this is one year since we led the first retreat here. And I, uh, you know, and I, and I looked to see how 
successful I am, what works, what hasn't worked, what kind of teachings work. And what I have seen is that I've helped a lot of people to be very successful in developing a lot of skill in their meditation. But I have seen that there are ways in which my approach to things has failed, uh, not succeeded. Uh, maybe there's a better way to say it's failed. It hasn't, has, there hasn't been the level of success that I think is possible. And so, you know, I'm reflecting, okay, what needs to be different? What can be different? And the things that I have noticed is, that, first of all, these retreats are a special opportunity. And they haven't, the maximum benefit hasn't been obtained from them. There's people come to this retreat and they go for naps and they go for walks and they go out and make phone calls and they go shopping and they have conversations with each other and they read books and uh, they go out and sit on the rocks and sing and they do all kinds of things that they enjoy and are wonderful. But what I know is that to the degree that people do these things, those things are standing in the way of them achieving the kind of success that I'm hoping for them. Maybe, maybe they're getting everything that they had hoped for. <laughs> but I, I'm hoping for more. And the other thing that I have noticed is that uh, whereas some people are, you know, they follow the instructions exactly and they get really good results. But not everybody does. And that some people, you know, always want to try doing things a, a bit their own way. And so I've been thinking about what is, you know, how much, how much of this is a problem and how much of this is okay? How much of this would be better off changing and uh, how much to leave the same. I do believe, I look at the retreats that I've been at and the retreats that are taught by other teachers, places like Spirit Rock, uh, and uh, some of the teachers that come to uh, 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 Shambhala Meditation Center, things like that. And I know that their retreats uh, have been, uh, in some ways, more strict than these we've had here. And I think there's a benefit from that. And I would really like you to discover how much benefit there is in the next uh, four and a half days of following a very strict practice with the goal being that you never, no matter what you're doing, you never interrupt your meditation. I mean, by now, I, I, hope, I hope you understand by now what it means to meditate no matter what you're doing. To meditate means that your mind's not going wherever you want it to, and that you are fully aware of what's happening in the present moment and what you're doing. There is directed and sustained attention, and there is mindful awareness. And so I'd like to ask you, please, uh, if you're willing to, all of you hopefully, but at least any of you who are willing to, try practicing in that way for the rest of the retreat. And let's see how effective it is. And uh, yes, it will be it will be difficult. It does become tiring after a while. And yes, your your mind will wander off and get into daydreams, and your mind will find all kinds of ways to take a break. And that's all right. 
I'm not saying that that, that shouldn't happen because I know it will happen. I'm just saying that you hold the intention to practice and that you not deliberately decide to slack off. But if your mind slacks off and you're, you're, you're not quick enough to catch it, you know, until half an hour later, you shouldn't blame yourself for that. I don't blame you for that. You didn't decide to do it. It wasn't deliberate. I can't point to the self inside you and say that self inside you is the blame for, for doing that. But if you decide to take the time off and goof off and give yourself a break and just do something more fun, then uh, that's what I'm asking you not to do. Not to decide to slack off. Instead, keep that intention that you're going to practice seriously all of the time. And the other thing that I'd like to ask is that for the rest of the retreat, um, try to be rigorous in following the meditation instructions that I've given you. Not everyone has exactly the same instructions because I've given you some of you different instructions when we've done the interviews and some of you are already doing practices that are not quite exactly uh, what uh, I teach, but we've talked about those and I've pointed ways that, that you could uh, make use of that. So these two things though, absolute silence, trying not to disrupt anybody else because everybody else is going to be meditating is going to be trying to meditate 24 hours a day, at least as far as you know. <laughs> so you assume that they're trying to be totally concentrated all the time, no matter where, where they are and what they're doing. And then, as much as possible, try to actually do the meditation practice to the best of your understanding of how you're supposed to be able to do it. Okay? That's, what I, that's all I'm asking. And then, if you do that, then you can let me know if, uh, if you feel like it makes a big difference. Yes? I have tried, um, I have tried like sign language when I need to communicate with someone. Mm -hmm. And I was communicating with Neil and he didn't understand what I was saying. You know, when the food man was here, I'm going like... Yeah, well the point is, the point is, really, there should be no communication, not by sign language, not even by mental telepathy. <laughs> no imposition on somebody's completely private internal space, okay? That's the idea. Now, one of the shortcomings is the place that we're in. We have no staff at all, only meditators and, and, and myself and, and Nancy. So there's no staff here. And the other thing is that... Uh, it is the nature of this place and the way we do this retreat with somebody driving up to deliver food and trees falling down and other things like that happening. So uh, it is a challenge, but I would like you to try, just do your absolute best. I mean, stop and mindfully consider, is there any way that the situation can be dealt with without intruding on somebody else's private mental space. But, but please intrude upon mine. Yes. As a matter of fact, that's the, the proper conduit would be, you know, if you absolutely need to, find Nancy, find me, and it can go from, from you to one of us and from one of us to whoever else it may need to go to. 
sometimes close, and if that's closed, knock on it. Okay. If it's open, walk up and knock on the wall or the divider or something. Yeah, and, and sometimes I, you know, maybe I make a phone call to an elderly parent to see how they are, and I close that door so that if we're talking, yeah. hopefully I'm not disturbing yeah. you. But, you know, by all means, knock on the door. Okay. We're, I'm yeah. here for you, and I, I really want yeah. you to close upon me. I was looking for Debbie, and then I the other day, I didn't want to bother you, and I, I was looking for Debbie, and I knocked at the wrong door. So. Okay. So. But everybody knows where we are now, the end of the long haul. And knock on the door, knock on the wall, you know, knock on something, and we'll hear you and come see. What's all that knocking about? I have, on occasion, been out meditating on a rock, but I'm trying to stay in that and I know before we said go to Deborah or go to Scott, but I think we're at the point in the retreat where that shouldn't be necessary. And I would love to see Deborah and Scott have the opportunity, the first one in a long, long time, to just go as deep as they can with no interruption at all. So, so, uh, Nancy and I will be the, the conduits for whatever information first. Now all kinds of things. I, I may have to go water never stop, but I'll make that. You know. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, good. So, I know you came here. The billboard outside said we were talking about uh, not self and free will and things like that. And I get all this meditation mumbo jumbo. So I apologize. False advertising. So let me ask another question. That's what I'm asking. Yes. So you be. Okay. Okay. That having you do having your cup of tea exactly the same way you do walking meditation. Right. You know, you meditate. You focus your attention on sensations in the foot that's moving. So you focus your attention on the hand that's moving. The same way you focus your attention on what's happening in the mind that's deciding which kind of tea and all this other kind of stuff. As long as I, whenever I realize I'm not, I try to go back to it. You bring yourself to it. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I don't have to be very good at this. That's, I just have to be trying, right? That's right. You've had a wonderful meditation. You've been a tremendous success if every time you realize that your, your, your mindfulness is starting to move away, that you bring it back into focus. Any other questions about this? 
Well, good. I, I really hope you're going to have uh, the rest of this retreat might just really take off like a rocket, you know. Who can guess how many our hats will leave on Monday? <laughs> so uh, let's talk just a little bit of, about what we were supposed to talk about, okay? About self and no self. And I just like to invite you to think about it, maybe put forward, what, what do we mean by self? It's an interesting thing. Everybody here, you, you have a self or you are a self, right? As far as you know. And I don't know if any of you have tried to define or describe that before, but think about it. What, what is a self anyway? What is your self? I'd love to hear from you. Uh, I'll take a shot. Yeah. Um, I think this, my self is that, um, that I'll use the word person, that person that reacts and knows and does set of things that himself and others around him, and I'll use the word self there, yeah. but help me out here. Yeah, that's right. right. Others around him come to expect from him. Mm -hmm. uh, so this, this uh, sequence or this uh, sort of uh, pattern of behaviors and uh, mm -hmm. actions and ways of thinking uh, continues with normal amounts of change over time, of course, but that's what I think of as myself. Yeah, uh, that's, that's a good start. So, uh, okay, you said it's the person who, uh, who knows and does and uh, feels, and it's, uh, there's certain Attributes, patterns of behavior, and things like that. Yeah. That's good. So the qualities of, of the self. I mean, uh, first of all, does that have the quality of separateness or independence? In in the way it's, it seems to feel to you that you are. You said separate. No, separateness and independence being okay. the same thing. And I think, don't just, an, don't, don't analyze it, just, you know, is part of your yeah. idea of yourself, it involves separateness, right? It does, yes. Yeah. It does. And it involves a certain degree of independence. Yes. Okay. All right. And uh, it involves uh, continuity. Yeah. Like I'm independence, that's part of my pattern of behavior. I will. My wife gave me a great compliment about a year or so ago. We just had a fight, and I took some strange tack. She says, "Neil, you're an interesting guy." Mm -hmm. I took that as a big compliment. Okay. But you know, I do things a little different than many, and so independence. Yes. Okay. Independence, continuity. You agreed with the continuity. Uh, and uh, 
What about oneness, unity, singularity? Yes. Are, are you a self? Yes. Yes. There's, there's uni unity in that self, yes. right? Okay, so yes, these are these are qualities that we just sort of naturally feel that are, are part of whatever our self is. Whenever we find it, we're going to expect it to be one thing, not many. We're going to expect it to be continuous, not coming into existence and disappearing arbitrarily. And we, it, it definitely is, in somehow, there's a boundary that separates uh, this self from what is not self. And also that, that by virtue of that boundary, this self has, is, has a certain quality of independence and identifiability and recognizability so that, that uh, you, you, you can easily identify and recognize what is self from what is not self? Right? Okay. So these are. Would do these make sense to you? Does does this resonate with your natural sense of you as a self as being a unitary, continuous, uh, separate entity? And does the idea of an entity does that resonate? That whatever it is that I am, it's an entity. It's a kind of object. It it is a thing. Anybody have any other comments, things to add to that? Um, the way I see myself at this point, I feel like I'm not here for myself anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm here to serve others. Like, um, like I feel like I have to, I, I serve my whole family. I'm always wondering what every person needs, and I try to make everybody happy. Yeah. I think less of myself every day. Like, for me to come here is a luxury. This yeah. is my one year vacation. Um, so everybody told me, yeah, boy, have fun, you have fun, you know. Like, <laughs> well, it's not fun, but, you know, so this is my one year, you know, my mother was very upset about it, but I got very selfish, you know, for her. Yeah. But I feel like um, I wanted to accomplish a lot, and I want to be proud of, of this, you yeah. know, because this is very hard to accomplish for me. This is my first retreat like this. Um, but yeah, I feel like I'm not here for myself anymore. I feel like I'm, I'm here to serve others, and especially my family. And, and yeah. I don't see my family like it's the only people that I have with me. I feel like everyone around me is my family. Well, that's very good. That's wonderful that this self has an attitude towards others. But does it still feel like a, an entity? This, yeah, a, there's an I, there's a me, there's a mine. Yeah, that's yeah. everyone. The one that's like yeah. studying Buddhism and, yeah. and then nobody understands and then people are already calling me wordle, you know, and things like that. Um, yeah, so there's a, that separateness. That, uh, yeah. yeah, so I'm doing this for myself. Yeah. This it's is the only thing that I'm giving myself, mm -hmm. you know, to, to find more, uh, be happy with less. I, I mean, I'm happy already with less. Yeah. You know, I don't need anything anymore. So right. this is how I see myself. Okay, well, that's the thing. That what we do, what we all of us do, is we have gone through our lives with these, this idea very clearly present in our minds that there is this thing, this entity, this self that is separate and distinguishable from what is not the self, you know, so that that separateness is there, that it has, that the self that we're speaking of 
has been there ever since we remember, and that we would hate the idea that it was no longer there. We wouldn't want to lose it, this thing, this entity. And it certainly is a, a, a unitary single thing. So this, this is, I think, a pretty good description of this self that we cling to, that we attach to, that we naturally, spontaneously believe in. We go into this a little more detail and say, okay, that's a self. What about myself? You know, and so if you think about it, and you already addressed this, well, there's a certain there's a certain group of characteristics. So, you know, uh, yourself, your personality, it has a particular nature, and that's what makes it different than other selves. Is it has these particular characteristics and qualities, and it reacts in this particular way, and it likes particular things and doesn't like other things, right? You know. Is a definite set of attributes and characteristics that is a part of that self. Yes? What about the self that knows for sure that in this world there's nothing that can truly satisfy me, bring me happiness, and then I want to, you know, I, I have the, the desire to, to find an answer to this, uh, to, to find. Okay, that, that's an understanding, that's a knowledge. And what, you're, what I hear you telling me is, is uh, in this five aggregates, in this body and mind, there is that knowledge. And it feels like myself is what has that knowledge. Maybe, I guess so. Yeah. 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 We can put it in a different way. The self is a person encounter with outside factor, uses his organs. At that particular moment, he starts by his body, by his mind, by his mouth. Yeah. And so, at this particular moment, just like hearing the teacher's instruction, with my mind response, even without speaking. Yeah. That is the self, that particular moment. Mm -hmm. Could that be an expression of saying that that's the self? Well, that is, uh, just to repeat what you're saying, is that in, in each moment, in each experience, in each encounter that your mind and body has, there is, there is the experience of knowing, hearing, thinking, and so forth. And there is, there is, there is a mind and body in the present moment, right now. That is true. And there is uh, a process of seeing and hearing that that mind and body are experiencing. And it also, likewise, there may be a process of speaking or doing. And that is completely true. That that is absolutely true. And when we refer to that, we say uh, that, that, that that is a self. But what we're getting at here is when we say that that's a self, we feel like somehow that's the same self that has been doing, that has been having all of these other encounters in the past, earlier today, yesterday, and last week. And last, there's, we feel like the self of the present moment 
is more than just the events that are taking place. It's more than just the hearing and the speaking. But when we speak of a self, we have this natural sense that this has a continuity with the past, and that is it that, and that makes it something separate. That makes it a thing. So now, where I want to, where what I where I want to go with this, and what I want you to think about is that is that we have intuitively generated the idea of the self as a real existent thing, an object, with the qualities of separateness and unity and continuity. And at a deep level, we believe in the existence of that self, even though we may not have thought deeply about it. And that entity has a certain godlike stature within these five aggregates. Because these five aggregates has been going, passing through time, experiencing dissatisfaction and suffering, being compelled by craving, and always being in a state of becoming, in devotion to that idea of a self. Right? You see what I'm saying? There has, all, behind all of this, is this idea of a self, that all of this stuff has been done for, and that, uh, that is protected and cherished. And it's, it's, it's like a god, right? Uh, but now we're saying, okay, let's see if we can find this god, this, this ego god. Let's see if we can find the ego god, pin it down, look at it, see how big it is, where it lives, what it looks like, what color it is, what shape it is. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> let's see, let's see, is, is this ego god, does it really exist? So that, that's what our pursuit will be. Are you bringing up the concept self is the continuity from the past, present, and future? This, the yes, this is one of the things that we just naturally assume, right? We naturally assume that when we speak of ourself, that there is this continuity, that we've always been the same self. Are, are you the same self you were last year? No, it's not. You're not. It's that's true. Yeah, that's and this is and, and this is where our investigation will take us. When, when we try to say, okay, it seems to me as though I've always been the same self. But one of the things we'll look at is we'll look at if your self is a particular collection of aggregates, ways of reacting, behaving, thinking, believing, then if we look 10 years ago, or 20 years ago, or 10 days ago, or whatever, it should be exactly the same. And we find that it's not. I don't agree that it should be exactly the same. I, mean, I think people's normal perception of a self, them or someone else, is that there is a normal expected amount of change in someone. If you haven't seen, seen 
someone in five you years expect you expect them to be different, but not, you know, a completely different person. Right. You expect some normal range. But this is a good you still expect them to be the same self. Yeah. Okay. They're the same self. So we're gonna pick that apart. And right away we're gonna find, okay, they're the same self, but they're different in all these ways. Okay, okay, that's fine, okay. So, we are all the same self that we've always been, even though we're totally different in all the ways that, in all these different ways that we can think of. So that's fine. So, we, we'll, we'll work with that. Well, I mean, you use the word totally. Mm -hmm. Totally different than we, I mean, not totally. I know we're just doing semantics here, but okay. I mean, you know, so if, if, if I showed up two years from now and I was, you know, a, a six foot five woman, yeah, I, you know, I'd recognize you right there. You know, you'd wonder, <laughs> wow, that's really good. Neil, you're on hormones. Yeah, no, and, and I, I'm not saying that I, I'm, I'm not. Don't don't try to take this to place that's not going. I'm just saying that. There are, in the idea of sameness, as soon as we start looking at sameness, we find that there, we have to start making qualifications. Okay? So we already have to start making some compromises there. It is true. The, when I feel the self, even though when I was year, age of 20, when I think about, that's still there. Still feel that is Deborah, even though maybe right. looks some different. And I know that you know the way is kind of it changed, but still in the the biggest goal, I still feel that it's Deborah. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel like I become a totally different person. I know it's changing, so that is the self. I still in that. Okay. Well, the next stage in this is if you could imagine that Deborah from 20 years ago walks into the room, okay, and now uh, we can take apart the two Debras and all of the things that are different, we'll set them aside and then whatever is left that hasn't changed, that must be the real self, right? So we should be able to find the real self easily in this way and if we do, we'll approve the Buddha wrong, you know, and we'll write a book about it and be famous. Okay? <laughs> okay, so looks like our project is already bound for success because all we have to do is take the two Debras apart or the two Neils or the two Scots or the two any of us from any two periods of time. And once we've taken away all the things that are different, whatever's left must be the actual true self, right? Would you agree with that? Or you have a problem with that? I, I wouldn't agree with that. You wouldn't agree with that. Because you're, you're equating <laughs> self as an unchanging entity. And I don't believe that a self is an unchanging entity. Okay. So if we took Deborah from 20 years ago and Deborah from now <clears throat> and removed only those things which were very definitely different, and if in the end of the process, there was nothing left. We couldn't find anything that was the same. What then? <laughs> I, 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 
be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there might be, you, we, well, you know, if you did this, you might say, well, there is one thing the same, that the Deborah from now can remember her birthday when she was 10 years old, and the Deborah from 20 years ago also could remember the birthday from So you could find things like that that were the same. So maybe you could say, okay, the, the memories that both share, maybe that's what's both the same. Yes. Okay. Uh, I have my opinion. Mm -hmm. I talk to you and you check if it's right. Mm -hmm. okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. No matter 20 years ago, they brought what? Now? Uh, you find me out. I thought I have a, a the self, the entity is because I have, a, I have a body, I have an image, and I can eat, I can move, and uh, so so.
So my understanding is that um, uh, because uh, we usually do not understand, we are cannot control. We depend on all others, and uh, because we don't understand that, we keep react and trying to control. So that's why it brought us to reverse again and again to the samsara. You know, again, that's my uh, realization. That's a very, very wonderful realization. That's very good. And so, to, to restate that just very briefly to summarize it, is the realization that, first of all, that what the word I designates and, and what definitely exists is the five aggregates. And to say that there's no self doesn't mean that there's no body, that there's no mind, no feeling, or things like that. Because the five aggregates, they're real. At least from the point of view of relative reality, the five aggregates are real. So this, this is one thing. And the, and, and the implications of this is that if there, if, if there is a self, that it must, we, we need to know what its relation is. If, if what exists is the five aggregates, if there is a self, then somehow that self must be in the five aggregates. You know, and so later on we can investigate the five aggregates to see if there's a self in there. But the other thing here is that you realize that, uh, Sophia realized that, that the feeling of independence and separateness is also not not correct. That there is a no there is a, a no self aspect uh, because there is no independence and separateness that you can point to the aggregates and say they have this quality of being independent and separate because they're not. They are the five aggregates exist as a result of, as an outcome of, as a product of, generated by everything else. So, you, you didn't follow all of what I said? So yeah. yeah. Okay, well, I, I, I was agreeing with you that you have, a, you know, that, that is, that's a very good insight that you have. Look, okay. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. All right, we'll talk about that. That's good. To go back to the two Debras, though, we can do this kind of analysis, you know, and look for the things that are the same over time and try to find if there's, if there is, if, if we can find a basis of continuity in the two Debras. But do you see where that would lead? That analysis. If we can't find anything that is the same in the two Debras, and yet, so that would mean the continuous self must be somewhere else, and we have to look for it someplace else entirely. Right? The Debra of the past and the Debra of the present. If we can't find anything at all that's the same, then if there exists a self at all as an entity, as a being, that self must be somewhere else. We have to look somewhere else for it. Or, 
if we take away everything that is different and we are only left with what's the same, which might, for example, be memories from, from before that age, right? That still happen. Then, once again, either we're going to look at those and say, that is the self. Or we're going to say, well, no, those, those are nice things that are shared, but they're not the self we're looking for. And so once again, we have to look for the self somewhere else. Yes? So, so let's say that someone Deborah hasn't seen yeah. since she was 19, mm -hmm. okay? And uh, then she sees this person tomorrow. Right. She says, I'm Deborah. Remember from college? We had mm -hmm. English together. Yeah. And they said, Oh, yeah, Deborah, right. how yeah. are you? Because even though, quote, you know, everything has changed because we all change, there's still some similarity in the voice and face and the height and the fact that Deborah hugged them, you know, all those things mm -hmm. uh, are enough that would make them remember. Right. So, so good. So if we can find that person, they'll be able to identify the self of Deborah for us, right? Well, I'm, I'm trying to point out, I did a bad <laughs> job of it, that even though those physical things have changed, but they haven't changed enough so that the combination of them all together still was enough mm -hmm. for that person to agree that it's Deborah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's how much of it. Okay. Well, okay, maybe we have the self there. Maybe we have that pattern of things that is still there in both Deborah's that the person from college recognizes that maybe that's the self that we're looking for. Okay, and if that's the case, presumably we'll find we'll find that it fulfills all the other qualities and, and satisfies all of our other sense of what uh, a self is as well. Okay? So, uh, that's a possibility we're going to look into further. So anyway, go ahead, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, we're going to have a very brief sit for a few minutes together and then go to bed. But tomorrow, we'll continue this pursuit of the true self. See if we can find this true self. If we can find the true self, well, I, that's a wonderful thing. If we don't find any true self, it doesn't mean that we don't exist, but it means that we need to look at what clearly does exist and understand our lives in relationship to that, not towards some imaginary self that we can't seem to find. So that's our task. Okay? Say something else. Yeah. Because I have realized so many times. <laughs> the, the, the one, one quality you talking about the unity. Yeah. The unity. Because uh, probably, is that necessary that the unity to form the self? Do you, well. Because I, 
I, I don't, I sometimes I don't feel have the unity, you know, because I feel like uh, I'm something that parts put together is not something like I physical and mental. I got a, I got a different, different personality. It look like so many different, different things united to be yeah. put in together and. And sometimes, like uh, you say, look back, look back at uh, the the music. It totally looks different people to me. Mm-hmm. Even though the like the he said the shape is similarity, but but the person for me looked like uh, when I remember memory back, it looked uh, totally different people. Yes, that's why that's the way that so I feel too. So it's not not that's not a unity. Eh? Well, uh, okay, the unity part is whether there's only one self or not. Right now, are, are you one self or, or does the self, is, is, is the self... Right moment. moment. Yeah, is yeah. this... Uh, well, moment, yeah, I, I feel like, yeah, I, I have the self here, yeah. You, you have one self. Yeah. You, well, are, you, you, you are one self. Okay. Uh, so, uh, and, and the, if the idea of what we think our self is is one thing, you know, then we say the unities are part of it. But the continuity of the self, my feeling is if if uh, the 20-year-old version of me walked in here right now, uh, boy, I, I don't know. I, I could, that'd be very That's a totally different person. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. It's a totally different person, so. And so that's why, you know, uh, uh, and, and the example of the two Debras, maybe in some people we could find more continuity, in other people we'll find less continuity, you know. Uh, so uh, that's the continuity aspect. The unity aspect is that there's only one of you. And what would, and the thing is that. But sometimes I feel not only one. Well, it sounds Maybe. yeah. Maybe, you know, so this how, is how come how come how come this one if we doing something like how how come this one coming come out to do it? Oh, this is maybe a people in the mind. Not 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 the other one coming to do it. I feel the same way. Well, okay. Well, I, I I'll tell you where this goes. You know, is that you look for the unity, and when we do look for unity, we're going to find it's not there. So we're going to say, okay, um, maybe you don't have to have unity. We'll cross that off the list of characteristics of what a self is. But if we cross off all the characteristics of what a self is, then we don't have, we've come to the same point. The self doesn't exist if we, either that or we need to think of some other characteristics that we didn't think of earlier. We need to figure out what this self is that we go through our life believing we are. Who, you know, who is it that we are doing these things for? So, only need a one quality existence that will form the self-feeling? The what? I mean, the self-feeling only need a one quality to, to have the self-feeling? Do we... Uh, we could, if, if we can define the self in terms of only one quality and we find that that quality 
holds that that quality withstands our analysis, that's fine. Then we've got a self. You know, there's, there's no rule that says the self has to have two or three or six or any given number of qualities. Okay. It could have only a single quality. Uh, and that's all right. But whatever we end up with in our investigation, uh, we're going to see what kind of a self we have in the end and see whether it justifies the, uh, as, as I say, if it justifies the role that this uh, ego god has played in our life up to now. Because remember, that's what we're after is, you know, there is this ego god that we have been uh, cherishing and serving and devoted to and who has basically been in charge of everything uh, and to blame for what's wrong. Right? <laughs> so we have this ego god that, uh, that we're blaming and holding responsible for and also doing everything for. We've got to see what this really is and so decide what we're going to do about it. What about ego gods? Because, uh, because there's always a committee of, of, of you know, uh, there's always a committee inside the mind. You know, one, 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 one community member may, may want to go out and play basketball, the other one wants to stay in, in, in house and study. Yeah, that's right. Well, that, and that's one of the things that we need to talk about is if, if there is this unity, this ego God. What about God with an S? <laughs> God. Well, ego God. We find, well, it's not a unity. It's not one. It's a committee. It's, it's, it's like a board three, of directors. It's, it's, a whole, it's a whole tribe. <laughs> so we have to change our definition there, you know? <laughs> okay, so uh, let's, uh, let's, let's just, if you can, I know you have some wonderful thoughts and things you'd like to think about this, but uh, let's carry some of this over for tomorrow. Don't forget these ideas, you know. See, I've stimulated your mind so much. Now I might want you to go and be mindful all day tomorrow without thinking about these things. <laughs> what a dirty trick. What a dirty trick I've played on you. Huh?